lift shouts of praise to his name. Thank you, Lord. It's time, it's time, it's time. Last time we got together, we said the best is yet to come. I believe the Lord is saying to us, it is time. Now is the time. We've been having a little joke amongst us, trying to help our foreigners understand the difference between now, just now, and now, now. But we all know that it's time now. Come on, let's praise the Lord. So just as you go back to your seats, a couple of things just to bring to your attention. Folks, uh, the meeting tonight at Breakthrough Life Church uh, it's sold out. Sorry, we have no more capacity. So if you didn't already have tickets, uh, you're welcome to come. You'll be in the parking lot. There'll be some overflow anointing, but you won't be able to get a seat inside the building. So just to, to take note of that. And uh, if you're joining us tomorrow morning when Bill is going to be speaking at Breakthrough, um, please, if you could rather come to the 1030 service. Um, because the, the first service is going to be full, um, and we're, we're hoping that there'll be some space and capacity for you. Again, just being on the property will be pretty good. Okay, so uh, we're, we're really looking forward to that. We know that the Lord's got a rich deposit for us. Um, Daryl, was there anything else I needed to, to say? So, I know that you've seen my face and you've seen Moss's face, but you need to know we were not the people behind the scenes doing all the work. There's been a small army, it's more like a tactical force, that's been working brilliantly to ensure that we had a good, efficient conference. Can we thank Daryl and the Breakthrough team? want to thank uh, the Bethel students for flying out at their own expense to come and serve us. You guys are amazing. Thank you. And we want to, to thank the, the church here, Christian family, for opening up their home to us, welcoming us, and uh, enabling us to, to meet in this way. They've been absolutely phenomenal in their hospitality and their kindness and their graciousness. We want to say thank you, CFC. And we want to say thank you for coming. And thank you for receiving impartation. And by faith, thank you for going and changing the nation. God bless you. Thank you so much. And now, without further ado, would you welcome Bill Johnson. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. 
because it's the last session, I thought I should read two. Just because I know it's the real reason you're here. A Baptist preacher went to see a member of the community and invited him to come to church on Sunday. The man was a producer of fine peach brandy, and he told the preacher he would love to attend his church if the pastor would drink some of his brandy and admit it in front of his congregation. In kindness, the preacher agreed, had a small glass. Sunday morning came, the man came to church. The preacher recognized him from the pulpit and said, I see Mr. Jones is here with us this morning. I want to thank him publicly for his hospitality this week and especially for the peaches he gave me and the spirit in which they were given. serious, I promise. Several men are in the locker room at a golf club. A cell phone rings on the bench. Man engages the hands-free speaker function, and he begins to talk. Everyone else in the room stops to listen. Hello, he says. A woman on the other end says, hi, honey, it's me. Are you at the club? He responds, yes. She says, well, I'm at the shops now, and I found this beautiful leather coat It's only $2,000. Is it okay if I buy it? And he said, sure, if you like it that much. She went on. She said, I also stopped by the Mercedes dealership, and I saw the new models. I found one I really liked. He says, well, how much? She says, that's $200,000. He says, well, okay, but for that price, I want it with all the options. She continued. Oh, and one more thing. I was just talking to Janie and found out the house I wanted last year is back on the market. They're asking $2.2 million for it. The man responded, well, go ahead and make an offer of $2 million. They'll probably take it. If not, we can go the extra 200000 if you really want it that badly. She responded, okay, I'll see you later. I love you so much. He responded back, bye, I love you too. The man hangs up. The other men in the locker room are staring at him in astonishment, mouths wide open. He turns and he asks, anyone know who this phone belongs to? Mediocracy is, is actually made of two words. The first part 
media comes from a word that means average. The last part, crassy, is actually the word government. Mediocracy is a governmental influence that keeps us average. It's an unseen influence governmentally that reinforces the tall poppy syndrome to prevent any of us from pursuing excellence in God because of the fear of standing out. The enemy is so dreadfully afraid of our creative expression in the earth. And creative expression doesn't mean we all paint or we all sing or we all do what is typically thought to be creative. That's a part of it, of course. But I think the arts are actually the tip of the iceberg of the creative realm. An accountant in God will discover creative ways to run his business that's different than somebody else because it's perfectly suited and fit for him. The lawyer, the pastor, the, the point is, is there's a creative realm of influence that every person is responsible to enter into. Not to copy somebody else's efforts, but in our willingness to be completely authentic. Authentic in who God made us to be. I remember reading this statement years ago. It really stunned me. Uh, simple, but it, it's, the statement is, every five-year-old is an artist. And what happens is when we go through life, we get told what is art and what isn't art, and suddenly that bent towards creativity diminishes in a person's life as they get older, and it wasn't supposed to. It was supposed to be redefined, not killed. One of the things you notice about the disciples is there's none of them that were that was born in um, in in a noble family. Uh, none, none of them were famous or their parents famous. They're all, you know, fishermen and, and you know, the, the stuff that they all, the, their, their backgrounds, insignificant cities, insignificant families, and an insignificant nation. And yet something happened when they started spending time with Jesus. They, they actually started arguing as to who was the greatest. I don't know that they ever would have had that argument if they'd not been with Jesus. See, he, he awakened something in them. Now, now he, didn't, he didn't approve of their view of greatness, but he also didn't try to kill their passion for greatness. Religion does that. Religion wants mediocrity, not excellence. And so we find the disciples, when they spend time with Jesus, the story is brilliant in Luke 9. It's almost... It almost could be a sitcom, it's so funny. They're arguing as to who's the greatest and Jesus doesn't rebuke the passion for greatness, he redefines it. Points to a child, another case he points to a servant. Uh, this is greatness in the kingdom. So what he didn't do is kill the, or the passion for greatness. What he did do is redefine it.
are you alive? <laughs> Sorry, it's a personal joke here. I was, it's not fair, but yeah. I, I ask people that a lot. <clears throat> so the next, the next verse is the disciples are, are telling Jesus, we saw, we saw some people casting out demons in your name, and we told them to knock it off because they're not with us. Now, they only said that to Jesus because they thought Jesus would go, awesome, protect the group. <laughs> we, we are a group, and it doesn't include them. And they, you know, they were thinking they're going to get a pat on the shoulder you know, for their boldness. And Jesus says, no, nah, if they're not against us, they're for us. He, he redefined it. He, 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 he trimmed that wild growing branch, and he pruned it back to where it actually bare kingdom fruit and not just nice leaves, you know. And so he's, he, he, didn't, he didn't scold them for their desire for family. He just extended the understanding of what family looked like. Redefined it. The, the basic desire, the passion was right. It just had the wrong application. So he redefined it. And the next scene, James and John come to Jesus and they uh, say um, this particular city wouldn't let us do what we do there and, and uh, with your permission we'd like to call down fire and kill everybody <laughs> now let's think for a minute what kind of meetings must they have had when Jesus sent them out two by two to think they could actually call down fire and consume an entire city why were they arguing who's the greatest? Because they had just been sent out two by two. They saw incredible things happen. So you've got to realize, when they regrouped the 12 of them, Peter's going, John, there's no way in the world you saw happen on your trip what I saw happen in my... In fact, if you saw how God used me on my trip, you would understand I am the head of this group. <laughs> and they've all got that experience. They've all got that sense like, oh man, no, you should have seen what happened to me. And so they're coming out of success in ministry... And then they start thinking their group is better than anybody else. And then they finally push it to the limits. And they say, you know, things have gotten bad. The opposition is strong. With your permission, we'd like to call down fire and wipe out that entire city. Spirit of murder just jumped right on them. And, and they didn't have enough discernment to recognize they weren't operating in the anointing. They, they got a different anointing. In fact, that's what Jesus said. He said, you don't know what spirit you are of. In other words, the spirit is on you, but it's not the one... That, you've, that I've taught you to cooperate with. And, and, he, and he rebuked them. But what he didn't do was, here's what I would have done. If I go home after this trip and I have staff members that meet me at the airport and they say, Bill, uh, we tried to do ministry in such and such a city and uh, the elders of the city met us at the border. They said, we don't want you here. Go home. And then they go on to tell me, uh, we've placed bombs around the param parameter of the entire city. And it, with your permission, Bill, we'll just blow the entire place up in Jesus' name. <laughs> now, now, if that were to happen, at minimum, I'm going to have them not go on the next outreach. <laughs> 
at, at minimum, at minimum, I'm going to say, you know, you've got some issues we're going to have to work with before I put you in the pulpit again. I mean, and Jesus doesn't do that. He, he just, he, he rebukes them, but then he re redefines and he says, I didn't come to take life, I came to give it. He just thinks differently, completely different. And I guess we should know by now we're not always going to get it right on the first try. You know, a lot of people never make mistakes in the function of the gifts of the Spirit because they don't take enough risk to make a mistake. And then they feel qualified to criticize those who get it wrong. In, in our environment, we have people pair off. We say, you guys on the right, uh, get a word of knowledge for the person you're about to pray for. you got two minutes. And then they do it. And we ask, how many, how many of you got it right? And they raise their hand, we cheer. We say, how many of you got it wrong? They raise their hand, we cheer. Because the goal was to try. The goal was to try. I am a uh, Apple computer disciple. I, I, iPads, I have, I, I, I'm sorry if you have the other kind. I'm surprised they're still making them. <laughs> hey, I've got, I've got the mic. Leave me alone. Oh, I've got the phones. I've got the iPads. I've got the computer. If they made Apple underwear, I would buy them. <laughs> I said that once somebody yelled out, yeah, and it'd be called uh, eyewear, or yeah, yeah, eyewear. <laughs> Apple has two basic uh, parts of their business. They have manufacturing, which in any uh, corporation, any, any business at all that has manufacturing, their core value for manufacturing is zero defects. You don't, you don't want to make a phone send a million of them out and then have to recall them and spend all that money to fix what you sent out that wasn't fit for service. So zero defects is what you want. But the other part of the business is research and development. And if, if zero defect is your core value in research and development, you won't invent anything because you'd be too afraid of making a mistake. You have to actually find out what won't work. That's how you find out what will work. When I taught my boys how to ride the bicycle, I was going to talk, teach my daughter too, but my boys did it ahead of me. One day I got home and they had already taught her. But when I taught them to ride the, their bikes, I took them down to the park where there was a lot of grass so that when they fell, not if they fell, when they fell, they'd fall safely. And as leaders in this room, our responsibility is to create safe environments for people to learn so that when it doesn't work, they know how to brush off the grass stains, get up and try again. And research, research and development, that is regarding ministry. Zero defects is regarding integrity and character. I always want to maintain the standard of zero defects, of walk purely before the Lord. But in ministry, 
oftentimes we don't know what we're doing, but we have to be willing to try. And unfortunately, in religious cultures, the person who tries is the person who gets criticized, and the person who doesn't try is the person who's thought to be wise. That was an excellent point, Bill. That, uh, that's a good point. If, if we're cautious, if we're cautious in ministry, all your friends will call you wise. You, you just won't move many mountains. I tell you what, let's open the Bible. Let's go to Luke chapter 5, and uh, I've got... Boy, it was almost 8 o'clock, but it's not. (laughs) Sorry. Luke chapter 5. Did I already tell you to open that? Did I? A while ago, did I? How many of you, you you got bored and you closed your Bibles? Aren't you sad that you did that? Because I'm ready to read it now. Sorry about that. Luke chapter 5. Um... Verse 4, when Jesus had stopped speaking, he said to Simon, launch out into the deep, let down your nets for a catch. Simon answered and said to him, Master, we've toiled all night, caught nothing. Nevertheless, at your word, I will let down the net. When they had done this, they caught a great number of fish. Their net was breaking. They signaled to their partners to the other boat to come and help them. And they came and they filled both the boats so that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, said, Depart from me, I'm a sinful man, O Lord. He and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish, which they had taken. One more verse. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on, you will catch men. There's two things that I want to address as we, as we wrap up this, uh, this event. This is the first one. <clears throat> Jesus didn't, in this story, didn't preach to Peter about what was wrong in his life. He didn't rebuke him. He didn't teach him on how to do life better. All he did was show him how to catch more fish. Who is Peter? Well, at this point, he's a businessman. More fish means more income. Of all the methods in ministry to bring people to Christ, my favorite, and I even addressed it a little bit last night, my favorite is the bold preaching of the gospel. I mean, I, I, just, I love the bold preaching of the gospel. Yeah, that's what changed my life. A man named Mario Murillo was just a bold preacher of the gospel in my life. And it it just, it challenged me for a season until I finally dove in and said the complete yes. I'm thankful for the bold preaching of the gospel. I love it. If I'm going to pick one tool, I'm going to use that tool. But what's so fascinating about Jesus is that he knows exactly what is needed in each situation for the rich young ruler, he said, you have to sell everything and follow me. But to Mary, Martha, Lazarus, they were quite wealthy family. He didn't say that to them because it wasn't the need of their life. 
It's, it's, not, it's not one size fits all. Jesus knows what to address in each person's life to, to leave, to, to follow after him. And so here's the story with Peter. He blesses him. And blessing brought him to repentance. It's, it's the strangest thing. It says in Hosea 3, 5, it says, In the last days, the... Um, Oh, goodness. The, it was the blessing of the Lord on God's people that was going to bring many to repentance. It's a, it's a strange concept because, at least in my upbringing, it was, always, it was always the rebuke or the correction or the bold preaching, the decrees that I am still such a fan of. I, I, I like all of that. I, I like it up front. I like, I like that aspect. But I'm, I'm, having, to, I'm happen, having to change my heart and how to approach people to realize, don't pick your favorite and then make that your standard for life. Do a relational journey where in the relationship with the Holy Spirit, you learn how to respond to each person. And in this case, Jesus knew the thing that would bring Peter to his knees in repentance was abundance. People got so angry during the Toronto outpouring. They got so mad because they said, those people are laughing. They should be weeping. You know, it's probably true in some cases. But the Lord actually knows. See, we're not looking for the same method. We're looking for the same outcome. What do we want? We want people yielded to, to God. We want them living and walking in repentance. And, and sometimes it is the bold preaching. Sometimes it is the repentance at the altar. But sometimes a person's life is radically transformed because undeserved joy hit them. It's called grace. Undeserved joy. And in this case, a businessman named Peter had so much income that he had to share it with other businessmen. And that brought him to his knees. Look at Luke 19. You guys all right? You still happy? I'm, I've, I've been in a good mood all day, although I don't think I sounded like it in the last meeting. But I'm trying to make up for it. I don't know. I, I'll probably throw kisses and everything at the end. Uh, or, or maybe just read more jokes. I'm not sure what, what it'll be. <laughs> I don't ever let people vote because I know they'd vote for the jokes instead. So, Okay, Luke 19. Here's, a, here's another interesting story. Verse 1, Luke 19, Jesus entered and passed through Jericho. Behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus who was a chief tax collector. He was rich. He sought to see who Jesus was, but he could not because of the crowd, for he was of short stature. And he ran ahead, climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was going to pass that way. When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and he saw him, and he said, Zacchaeus, make haste, come down for today, I must stay at your house. He made haste, he came down, and received him joyfully. When they saw, they all complained. First time that ever happened. They all complained, saying, he has gone to be the guest with a man who is a sinner. 
Then Zacchaeus stood and he said to the Lord, Lord, look, I'll give half my goods to the poor. If I've taken anything from anyone by false accusation, I restore fourfold. Jesus said, today salvation has come to this house. He is also a son of Abraham. This is another one of those unusual stories, but it's still a part of the, the tool bag that Jesus carries. He's, he goes into a city, and in this particular day, a tax collector was, was synonymous with the word thief. And the fact that he was a, tax, a chief tax collector means he was in charge of the mafia. You know, he's, he's, like, he's like the head guy. And a tax collectors would be despised in a community because they represented government, but they used their position to, to take more than what was required. And they personally benefited at the expense of the community they lived in. The chief tax collector is in charge of other collectors and does the same. The most despised man in the crowd, <clears throat> Jesus invites himself over to his house. <clears throat> Excuse me. Sorry, I swallowed a frog on the break and <laughs> trying to get it out. So Jesus invites himself over to this man's home. Who's the most despised person in the crowd? Zacchaeus, no question. Everybody in the crowd would love to have Jesus at their home. It's a strange thing. Even the Pharisees who hated Jesus wanted Jesus in their home. It's like he's the famous guy. Everybody wants, you know, to be able to tell their grandkids, hey, I was there when. And, and so they're all in that place where they would love to have just a moment of personal attention. And Jesus chose the most dishonorable person in the crowd and he honored him with his presence. There's no record of Jesus walking with him to his house saying, Zacchaeus, I know about your life. I know what you've been doing. I know how you've stolen from people. I know how you've mistreated me. It's none of this, none of this kind of conversation. Many of us, if we were in that environment, we would look for the chance to say, you know you need to return what you've stolen. You know you need to leave, live with compassion. You've got wealth and you've got it at the expense of your community. Many Christians in that position would be using that position not to honor but to rebuke in the name of holiness. <clears throat> and Jesus just, you know, the, the one who could lock horns with the Pharisees and bring such a word of correction is now with the most despised person in the community, and he simply honors him by coming over for lunch. Give him, give him undefiled attention, one-on-one -on -one attention. And it did something to Zacchaeus that was so profound that he begins confessing to the Lord while they're walking to the house. Do you, do you understand this? He, it's not the result of a good sermon. It's not the result of it's, it's not the result of Jesus maneuvering in such a way to get him to confess his sins. It wasn't that at all. It was simply the Son of God, the Son of the Most High, honored the most dishonorable person with his, his personal attention. He honored him. And that honor 
he was unaccustomed to because no one had done that to him before. And then to have it happen from the one who opens the blind eyes, from the one who finds a gold coin in the fish's mouth, from the one who walks on the water, this one comes to his home and simply honors him with his presence. It's not the way any of us would advise our evangelistic teams to go into a community and minister. Because we tend to have a one-size-fits-all, depends on your background, depends on your training. My training is the hard confrontation training. But this story bothers me in all the right ways. The Lord dials up in me some of my own background of which part was good, but I took it farther than the Lord was taking. I don't know if this is making sense to you. It's, it's, it, it's, I, could, I could see that Jesus comes and he sees this guy up in a tree and he calls him out and he says, let's, let's go quickly to your house. And when he does, all of a sudden, this guy just starts confessing. What's the ambition of our impact on the people in our lives? Is that they would walk completely with the Lord. That they would walk in repentance. That they would, that, that, you know, we all want, I'm sure, the result of our life for it to be said, I was inspired to follow Jesus wholeheartedly with everything in me because of this person's life. That's what we want. But it's not just the rebuke that brings the change. Sometimes it's the honor given to a dishonorable person. You know, one of the craziest stories in the Bible <clears throat> for me is Daniel with Nebuchadnezzar, and it's a long story. It's, uh, it's gruesome at times, but he's, Daniel's in this cultic environment. And I mean, he serves this king who's just an egomaniac, makes a statue of himself, kills anyone who doesn't bow down and worship it. You know, you've got issues when, when that's your, your lifestyle. And Daniel serves this guy faithfully. And in chapter 4 of Daniel, he's, he interprets this dream for the king. And when he sees that God's judgment is being aimed at Nebuchadnezzar, what he doesn't do that many of us would do is say, I've been telling you. I've been telling you, you can't do what you've been doing and not get judged by God. I'm telling you what, you've been sowing seeds. It's time you harvest what you've been planting. I've been, I've been sent by God to protect you, and you've resisted all protection, and you are now open for the judgment of God. Many Christians, that's, that's the moment when we, when we basically see I'm right, which means you're wrong. But instead, Daniel, there's this cry of his heart when he sees the interpretation of the dream. His cry of his heart says, oh, king, I wish that this interpretation were aimed at your enemies and not at you. Isn't that bizarre? He's, he's called to serve this guy that is so strange spiritually. He's created a cultic environment where Daniel is listed with other occultists. He's in that number. And yet when it came time to announce that the judgment of God was 
was on this king that he was called to serve, it wasn't unsanctified mercy. It wasn't, it wasn't all, King, you're, you're, you're fine, you're okay, I'm sure God didn't mean it. It wasn't any of that nonsense. It was that heartfelt cry that his assignment was about to go under the, under the discipline of the Lord. And here's the, here's the interesting thing <clears throat> about God's discipline. <clears throat> if I have a friend, believer or not, that is being disciplined by the Lord, if I stand to accuse them, the Lord is now called to defend them because I'm misusing my authority. This is true. It says, it says, don't take vengeance. Leave room for the wrath of God. In other words, don't you do that. Don't use your position of authority as an intercessor, as a prayer warrior, as a pastor or leader to point at somebody else and say, God's judgment is on him. No, you are responsible to do what Daniel did. He stands in this environment not to keep him from God's hand, but to be with him so that when God disciplines him, he will be there to love him back to health. If I accuse, the Lord will defend. If I stand with, not pretending everything's okay, but just faithful friend, a loyal servant. If I stand with him, then God can discipline him fully because he knows he's got the support to survive the discipline. If I, if I abuse my position, and I use, we are all priests under the Lord. If I use my priestly position, a priest represents God to people, people to God. If I abuse my priestly position, and I come before with the accusation to another individual, the Lord has to come and defend them, because he cannot bless the prostituting of a gift to make me feel more religiously gratified that I'm taking a stand for something. He can't do that because he's forming something. If, if he blesses my words, then he is forming something in me that will create a monster in me because suddenly I, I feel the vindication to call out the judgment of God on various conditions in life. And the Lord wants me to be the one that stands with the friend that's in discipline because it's not his desire to destroy it's his desire to bring back to a place of wholeness and purity. <clears throat> Where are my jokes? Where are my jokes? Why, why does the Bible, why does the Lord give us why does he give us instruction on how to have a pure heart? Because he wants us to have a pure heart. Pretty complicated, you may want to write that down. <laughs> Why does he give us instruction on how to have a healthy family? Because he wants us to have a healthy family. So why does he give us instruction on how to create wealth? It's in the book. We have religiously shaped and formed ideas of what ideal Christianity looks like. 
And I'm telling you, in the next 10 years, there are going to be some dramatic shifts and changes on our perception of not what's right and wrong in the sense of morality, because I, I am an absolute stickler. We've, we've got to stay pure. But I tell you, the Lord is, is challenging some of our ideas. He brings a businessman to repentance by giving him more than his business can handle. That's what he did with Peter. And it brought him to repentance. He takes the most despised person in, in the region and he honors him with his presence and it brings him to repentance. See, we pray this prayer, I hope you pray the prayer, on earth as it is in heaven. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Well, what is heaven like? The supreme value of heaven is the presence of God. There's nothing in heaven separate from his presence. Abiding in Christ is a foretaste of heaven. Heaven, in a sense, is a person. How does heaven function? In heaven, every person is celebrated for who they are without a stumbling over who they're not. Can we do that here? Celebrate the grace that's functioning in a person's life. Sometimes an unbeliever. I've read in history where times where different heroes of the faith, for me personally, would not pray for an unbeliever to be healed. I think it's one of the greatest evangelistic tools at all because uh, that there is because the Bible says it's his kindness that leads to repentance. How about letting them taste and see that the Lord is good? Taste is experience. See is perception. What you experience will shape your perception. And what we want is to introduce people into that journey where in their own experience they see, taste for themselves that God himself is good. And where are they going to get that? Let's be honest. I, I, I love when people come to church and they get saved. We have it happen all the time. And I love that. But that's, that's not where the real impact on culture, impact on our cities. It's, it's out on the streets. It's in our relationships, our business dealings. It's the schools. It's the neighborhoods. It's, that's where it's all happening. And being able to take this wonderful, glorious gospel and learn how to live it in a way that, that we, we live honorably, where we just value who people are even before they know the Lord, where we, we can speak to and call out their, their destiny. What do, you think, what do you think Jesus was doing with Zacchaeus? There's no record of a sermon or counsel or anything, but there's, there's this honor that brought him to his place. Uh, just picture this. I've, I've got to wrap this up. But here's, here's, here's this wealthy man who just because Jesus had lunch with him, that's all, had lunch with him, becomes a resource for the poor in his region. Not because of a sermon, but, but because he was honored into his rightful place. I feel like the Lord is rewriting some stuff for us, re, re, changing the circuits in our brains on how we think and see and process and 
to be able to celebrate the person that God is honoring. I mentioned in the earlier uh, meeting this morning that <clears throat> Jesus said, if I don't know how to steward or manage another person's possession, how can I be entrusted with my own? So the ambition of the Lord in that story is for me to have my own. But the test is how I handle somebody else's position. All right, let's, let's put it this way. You're at work. Somebody else, your work partner, gets the promotion you wanted. The one you were praying for. Now you have the chance to steward another person's possession. The celebration over their personal victory is what qualifies you for your own. The inability to celebrate another person's victory as though it were my own is what reveals I'm not ready for my own. It's seeing into the fulfilled dreams of people around us. <clears throat> Celebrating the breakthroughs that they experience. It's just the great privilege of life. Every person deserves honor for two reasons, and some for three. Come back next year and I'll tell you. <laughs> I was a joke, that was a joke, that was a joke. It was entirely a joke. I'm gonna end with this, why don't you stand, it'll make me quit on time. <clears throat> <laughs> every person deserves honor from us for two reasons one is they were made in the image of God why can an ungodly person design a beautiful building not because they're demonized I'm, I'm trying to be practical here I grew up thinking that the person who wrote the beautiful song, they were under the inspiration of the devil if they weren't working for Jesus. Instead of realizing, man, God's got a bigger kingdom than I thought. I'm not saying that they're born again. I'm just saying he works with people before they say yes. So everyone deserves honor, number one, because they're made in the image of God. Number two, because they've been given gifts by God. They may not have been believed in him, but they've still been given gifts, abilities, things to steward in their life. And the third, is we have a responsibility to recognize the Spirit of God that rests upon believers and honor them for what they're carrying in God. Honoring a prophet in the name of a prophet is what qualifies us to receive from the fullness of their gift. If I honor a prophet as a good brother, I only get a good brother's reward. I don't get, the, I don't get what the prophet brings to the table. Why? 
because I don't have the honor to draw from that gift. And the Lord is setting the stage for us to live a lifestyle of honor that in some cases is simply the planting of a seed in another, as in with Zacchaeus, is actually an action that called him to his destiny, to his purpose for being. And so I want to pray for that for you, and then we'll, well, I'll close this with this simple prayer. <clears throat> Father, I'm asking in the wonderful name of Jesus that you would help us to, to see through your eyes, to feel with your heart, to perceive people the way you do, to be careful not to write people off, to not judge motives, to not do the stuff that we have been known to do, but, but to really honor people into their place in life, to celebrate before they deserve it, to, to credit them with what the grace that you've given them. I just pray that for us. I pray specifically for the church here in South Africa that this, this entire anointing of honor would find root here, would be able to be established deeply and profoundly here. And then it would run up the, the chain, so to speak, the, to people in higher authority. It would run down the chain, that people would just feel the pleasure, the delight of the Lord over their life, and that we would see mass conversions because people find they are most at home with you. And I ask that you'd give us the grace, the ability for that. In the amazing, wonderful name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thank you for an amazing few days. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. Where I come from, we say, Icho. And because other people can't say that, they say, wow. Wasn't that wonderful? I think let's put our hands together again. God is really good. And uh, we've come to the end of our time together here. But it's a good time to as we close our event together to just reflect on how it is that over the next hundred days we will be good stewards of all that we have heard and learned out of the servants of the Lord that have ministered to us so graciously, so lovingly, so faithfully. And I think that uh, we are blessed as South Africans to, to be able to gather this way, to just have someone from across the Atlantic come and share and sow into our nation, into our lives, uh, into our families, into our ministries. And that it's up to us to steward that. And I'd like as we, as we close, just to think in your own mind, in your own heart, some of the three, top three things you, you will be careful to do over the next hundred days so that, because if you don't do that, like immediately from here, chances are you will be coming again next year 
And God will have to say the same things again to you. And so it's up to us to, to really steward well what it is we've learned. I think our country is waiting for that. Our country is waiting for, for people who live as though they believed in it, as though they believed in what God is doing here, as though they believed that everything that has been shared, I think Sean Boltz had some powerful ways to say to us earlier today about what God's uh, will and purpose for our country is. And I think the nation waits for those who, who believe enough in him, enough in our destiny together as a nation to be able to have that in full display before an unbelieving, many of our country's people are unbelieving and are waiting for a reason to believe. And I believe God is raising us together as a witness to help our nation do that. So let's pray together as we think about these things and as we do uh, what the Lord is calling us to be and do. Heavenly Father, we, we are just blown away this afternoon as we, as we pause to reflect upon what you've just done, what we've learned, what you've revealed to us, what you've called us to be, to do. And as each one of us go back, and I know we go back to places and to contexts that will present us with punishing schedules for having dared to come away for so long to come here. And we'll be tempted to forget everything and just plow back into default mode of what we were doing before. And may God grant us the grace to have a presence of mind Do those things, Lord, that you have taught us. And now as we close our time together, we pray for traveling messes for each one of us. And for those who stay here, uh, as they listen to Bill later this evening, we ask for your continuing blessing upon them. And for those who are going with uh, Sean to break through, we also pray for them. We are also thankful, Lord, for this church for having hosted us, would you bless them, Lord? As you indeed blessed Peter for having given you his boat in order to address the people. And so we bless them as well. We ask that you will bless this church for having provided the boat. And we ask for all of these things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Cheers.